0: Leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is you're doing right now, whether you're ironing, whether you're running, whether you're, I don't know, whatever it is you're doing. Thank you so much for dedicating the next half hour of your precious time to this episode. And I do not think you'll regret it. So today's guest is a little bit different. Richard was an extremely successful salesman. He was the VP of a massive global military manufacturer. You've probably heard me say before that people don't learn by being told. They don't learn from training. They learn from experience. And sometimes when leadership and the operating model that the company works within are a bit balked, those experiences are not always very nice. Now, I met... Richard a few years ago and his story really stuck with me and it's a story of extremes of when things go really wrong and it's a story about how not to lead a company. But before I introduce you to Richard I just want to say as always massive, massive thank you to all of you lovely people that have sent me feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to hear more of and how I can improve the show. And who would you like for me to invite to be a guest on Humans Leading Humans? Your your feedback is really, really important to me. It really energizes me. And over the last couple of weeks, I've met some absolutely just beautiful leaders. And you know people who've got the same kind of mission and vision and passion as me. And there are more of us every day. And I love to hear that actually listening to these podcasts are inspiring people across the world to be more human centered. Do you know what? I think that this human centered leadership thing could it might really take off. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah. And the other quick thing, really quick. Um, there have been a number of PRs who've reached out to me um, over the last couple of weeks to try and place their clients on my podcast. And I'm really, really honored, but I just wanna make it clear what the kind of the USP of this podcast is. So the reason, again, that I'm making this podcast is to present the real warts and all learning stories from senior leaders, from all sorts of large complex companies and organizations. And the scientists who can provide the, the data, the research to explain why the create framework works the reason i'm making it is to make leaders believe that transformation is really possible to inspire them to try to be better and know that they can be because they're hearing people telling their stories and one day all of these stories will be aggregated into like a handbook which is going to be called something like you don't have to be a dot, 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 to be a leader or something like that. So as much as I'd love to feature coaches and startups, it's just not what this particular podcast is about. So I am really, really honored, uh, dear PRs, and I hope that you find podcasts that are right for you, but this is probably not it. So if you have suggestions of people that you'd like to hear from, that whose stories you'd like to hear on this podcast, please do email me, just email me, reach out to me. It's cats at wearebeep.com or you can head over to catskeely.com and sign up to the Human's Leading Humans newsletter, which doesn't go out too often, so it won't fill your inbox. Anyway, let me introduce you to Richard Bistrong. strong. I am so, so, so delighted to have you on Humans Leading Humans. Now, I need to tell you a backstory, reader, because this was kind of strange, serendipitous journey to me and Richard getting to know each other. So I'm on the train station at Menlo Park. And across the platform, there is this beautiful woman. And for some reason, I walked up to said beautiful women who was wearing amazing clothes. Oh, my God, you look amazing. Now, that could have gone one or two ways. But as it turned out that Mary is, and we ended up sitting for the journey from Menlo Park to San Francisco, is one of the world's best known whistleblower barristers solicitors. And so we talked a lot about how she has to pick up the pieces when people aren't incentivized to talk about risk. And I'm doing a stuff which is about incentivizing people to be open, get things out. Anyway, Mary, amazing woman. She's now actually a trustee of my charity. This is what Embracing Serendipity does. And she introduced me to Richard and said, you guys have got to meet. So Richard, I handed you the Create Framework. What did it make you feel, think?
1: Well... Thank you, Katz. And we share a number of different heroes together. Mary Inman is one of them, as is Amy Edmondson. And I really enjoyed your discussion with her. So it is such a pleasure uh, to join you here today. Thank you for this opportunity. And as far as the CREATE framework, how did it make me feel? I'd have to say uncomfortable. Because when I look at the model, some of these variables, well, they just won't sit and be comfortable with each other without organizational focus. So for example, two that popped out at me are courage and reward. I think if organizations don't focus on those as partners, they might actually end up in friction as a zero-sum game instead of complements to success so i'm really excited about digging into the details of the framework
0: and i think the point you've just made is like these are the conditions in which humans thrive but to embed these in the way in your operating system is not easy you have to think about architecting making sure that you're really thinking through how do we set up the right conditions anyway richard you've had a very very interesting life i think we can safely say what's been your journey
1: so Katz, generally speaking my journey is one from commerce to corruption to compliance i guess i like things that all start with the same letter so i spent 20 years as a sales executive half of that as a vice president of sales focusing on the united states market And then the second 10 years as the vice president of sales on everything but the United States market, the VP of international sales and marketing. And although it was for a defense firm, there was nothing particularly unique about my former employer. So in terms of its structure, its branding, the organizational style, it's not a defense journey that we're going to be talking about today.
0: Okay, so it's time. What's your story, number one?
1: So I guess the first part is let's talk about from commerce to corruption. So I've had 10 years of wonderful sales success in the United States market, which if we had to characterize it, it would be rich in opportunity and low in what we might think of as interaction and corruption risk. And then in 1997, so I am very much dating myself right now, I get this role as the international sales vice president uh, before I take my first flight. And and by the way, I have an advanced foreign policy degree. So I'm extremely excited about this new role. Before I take my first flight, I sign anti-bribery paperwork. So it's very clear that engaging in international business you can't bribe someone to win business or retain business. It's the U.S. FCPA, and it's a rather simple law. I sign off on it and off I go. And I am so excited about this new role. And very early on, I find myself in Argentina. And I am just chatting away with one of my business partners whose role it is to help me develop business in this country. They're often called third parties, agents, or intermediaries. And as we're talking about a very exciting upcoming sales opportunity, he shares with me that as part of his success and his success fee, that he's paying tolls to win business. Now, Katz, I grew up here in New York City, and I know what a toll is. It's the right to go over a bridge or through a tunnel. And in this part of Argentina, I didn't see any bridges or tunnels and I knew exactly what he meant by tolls. He was paying bribes to win the business. And I'm thinking, well, I know this is illegal, but he's not asking me for anything. He's just sharing, this is how things get done. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is really only a problem if I make it one. And who am I to get between my company in this large upcoming order and this country and life-saving equipment? I was selling armored vehicles, armored vests. These are things that are there to protect the welfare of individuals and teams. So right there, and I think besides the fact that it was in a beautiful part of Argentina, which is why I remember it so well, I just nodded my head. And just by nodding my head, and again, this story is about personal accountability. It's a very human story, as you share, warts and all. So due to no one's fault but my own, I nodded my head. And right there, just by the understanding and the promise that this third party would pay a public official a bribe to win the business, right there by the knowledge that a bribe would be paid, even though a bribe had not been paid, right there is when I first started to violate the U.S. anti-bribery law. And that's how it started.
0: I mean, with all of this minuted, you're nodding your head at something, you're thinking, well, this is the way the business is done around here. Uh, So what was on record?
1: It was not recorded and I wasn't thinking I was in the earshot of international law enforcement. But what I was thinking is I was thinking about the reward part of the create framework. And I had a very, very aggressive set of incentives, which I I met on a quarterly basis, um, resulted in a very lucrative reward and compensation package. And again, with the caveat that there's no ethical spinning here and all of these decisions are the ones that I took responsibility for and the ones that I ultimately went to prison for, I think we should ask ourselves, and this speaks a little bit to what you and Amy talked about, is if we're not careful, we can have the illusion of good performance, where bad behavior can hide behind good performance. And what happened, Katz and is what Amy Edmondson calls a dangerous silence developed between me traveling 250 days a year. I'm overseas, I'm all over the world. But this dangerous silence developed between me and my organization. Mm -hmm. I wasn't telling anyone how I was crushing my financial forecasts on a quarterly basis over the course of a decade. And Katz, no one was asking me to say, How are you doing so well in these high risk and lucrative markets? Because
0: they didn't care. Because all they're looking at is the pound signs, the dollar signs. Right. And, you know, Dan Ariely talks a lot about this. You know, the human is in love with money. And how did you feel about that?
1: So one of my other heroes is Anne Tenbrunsell and Max Bazerman that wrote this wonderful book called Blind Spots, to no surprise. And they talk about, do we think about the ethical consequences of our conduct beyond policies, laws, and procedures? So here it is, I am selling life-saving equipment to people who need it the most. Sometimes I'm getting it there faster and at less expense due to the corruption so this end user the country is getting a life-saving product i'm crushing all of my goals my objectives i'm meeting my incentives the company is thrilled with all these big orders the end user the public official who is sometimes paid at what we might think of as poverty wages i'm thinking well he or she gets a little something to make ends meet The third party moves on to the next opportunity. I looked at it as one big win-win. And there is a wonderful piece of behavioral research, and I know we're big fans of this subject, by Francesca Gino, who wrote a wonderful book called Sidetrack. And this research was co-authored by Dan Ariely and Professor Gino. And what it says is if we think our unethical conduct benefits others, like I did, that it becomes morally acceptable, and even scarier cats, we think of ourselves as virtuous and altruistic. And that's how I looked at my operating environment.
0: And I think we could probably say that about many leaders in many situations that actually, it doesn't matter how looking back it seems terrible, all the way through it, they'll be rationalizing it to themselves. They'll feel good about it. They'll make all sorts of narratives fascinating. So then your story number two, Richard.
1: So the story number two is about 10 years later, I find myself sitting in federal prison because ultimately this nodding, or oh, it started off at nodding, that's not what I went to prison for, but it really was the beginning of a slippery slope where I rationalized and justified the next bad act to the one prior, right? Now we can talk about, and this is so fundamental to Amy's work, the slippery slope doesn't have to be one, right? But sometimes cats, the toughest people to speak up about are ourselves. And especially where that Dangerous silence in my case, well, it got deeper and deeper and wider and wider over the course of 10 years. But it ultimately ended with me getting sentenced and I've got 14 and a half months in a U.S. federal prison to think about what happened and what does life look like now? And someone said, you've got 14 and a half months to think about what you want your life to look like when you're done with this sentence. And in the federal prison system, they, they don't let you do a lot of things, but they let you read. And I started to pick out books that I really wanted to read. And I had those sent in to me so I could read them. And I had them staggered so I could have time over that 14 and a half months. The one that changed the course of my life was Reinventing You by Dory Clark. And what Dory gave me an appreciation of is that warts and all, our stories, if we share them openly and transparently, can be learning moments for others, right? As I think you shared in your um, podcast with Emily, that we can learn by experience, not just by training and just by thinking about that and pondering it, I realized with humility, with everything that happened, that I might have the opportunity to share what it's like to be tasked with aggressive commercial success in some high risk parts of the world where you think you're in the middle of competing corporate objectives between the pressure to grow the business and the pressure to comply and where you think you can't deliver both with management. And I said, I'm just gonna talk about what that is like. And so when I left prison, I just started a simple blog on Google. I don't even think it exists anymore and just started sharing my story. And that ended up starting what would become a global ethics compliance and anti-bribery practice.
0: So looking back, in those 14 and a half months I'm guessing that there were pivotal points of you know and I think I, I can honestly say that listeners I think we've all been in situations where we're under pressure and we kind of know what we're doing isn't quite right but you shut up because it's you don't want to lift your head above the parapet and you want to get to that goal were well, there are points? in those 20 years or in the, certainly in the last 10 years where you can think something should have happened that would have changed my journey. The organization should have done something to take away the, the risk, not the risk, the temptation of just keep pushing for those crazy, crazy figures.
1: So again, with the preamble that this is no one's fault but my own, I want to rewind to 1997, when I'm going from a role that is rich in opportunity and low in risk to one that is less in opportunity. International sales cats are more, they're larger, but they're farer and fewer in between. And there's high risk. There's very high interaction risk. And giving someone a piece of paper that says just say no to bribery and off you go with these aggressive incentives. You know, just say no cats, that's a wall poster. That doesn't operationalize ethics and integrity. And then all of the sudden, right out of the gate, I'm succeeding and I'm exceeding my sales figures. That's where that dangerous silence, if someone would have been calling me early to say, Richard, we put you in this new role. We know that bribery risk is inevitable. You should be calling us for help. You should be struggling. No one was asking what Amy shared is, you know, at the end of your podcast with our, ask, what are you seeing out there? What's going on? And I think, Katz, if if the company was reaching out to me even if I wasn't reaching out to them, or maybe especially if I wasn't reaching out to them, early on before this slippery slope really started to cement, I might've said, I'm having a tough time. And as Amy shares, no one likes to say they're struggling and confused, but I think with proactive business outreach, particularly in the environment that we're in right now in 2022, that this type of what's going on out there, what are the risks, that the more we're asking people for that type of information, when there's not a crisis at hand, as Amy's research demonstrates, the more likelihood there is that people will reach out for support when they are facing a stubborn and inevitable ethical dilemma.
0: And the chances are that the people back in the office, they didn't really wanna know. They didn't want to know you were doing this. They knew the money was coming in, right? They've ticked the box of getting you to sign that form. The rest of it is invisible. Great, crazy situation. And I, I want to ask you more about prison. But I think we need to move on to the story number three. That must have been I can't imagine. I don't I just need to listeners. one of the thoughts that came to mind when we we're in lockdown. Uh, And I was going for walks every day. I walked for 12,000 steps every day. And it was the first time that I thought, holy moly, what must it be like to be in prison? You know, I've got, we might have two months of not seeing anybody, but being in prison must be the most extraordinary experience.
1: It it really was. And it may have been for me, you know, I, I walked into this international role with what I thought were good, solid values that were really challenged. And the more successful that I was, as you shared in one of your podcasts, the more power like got to my head and I never tried to get that off of my shoulder. So my values went way off course. And the one thing I will share, sitting in a federal prison, the job that I took was educating young men who were there for nonviolent drug offenses, who didn't have the resources of a graduate foreign policy degree, who were inner city kids. I called them because they were a lot younger than I was. And I helped to educate them, to give them the, the resources that they need so they would be least less likely to offend because they would have educational skills when they were released from prison. And I think the humility and the empathy and the compassion of educating these young men really helped to bring my values back to where they belonged.
0: You know, you're talking and I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that situation. And it also makes me think about um, I don't know whether you've listened to it yet, but Sir John Timpson, he has key making fixing. He has lots and lots of shops all across the UK. And I think something like 70% of their workforce are people who have been in prison. And in his episode, he was talking about how hard it is when you come out, because actually that's, you're branded. And so he, he trusts people, he lends them money, he brings them in and we're just all people. Story number three, Richard.
1: So story number three, and, and I think this all speaks to the CREATE framework, and also what Amy shared in your discussion with her, which I'm going to listen to a third time. It was so (laughs) exciting.
0: She is extraordinary, isn't she?
1: She absolutely is. And it, it all speaks to artificial harmony, right? Sales are great. No one's calling us for support. We've got everyone tick the box, trained, everything's wonderful here, right? No one's bothering to ask, do we have any dangerous reward systems out there? Are we even unintentionally tipping people to the wrong side of ethical decision-making? Are we not asking open-ended questions like, what are we missing? What are you seeing out there? And I think Amy really nailed it when she said, we need to care about what we don't know yeah that's just so critical to the success of the entire framework yes so thinking about the third story it wasn't that long ago and i'm sharing my story at one of my speaking events it was a public speaking event not a client speaking event and someone afterwards stood up and said, I I don't wanna stress you, I don't wanna make you anxious, but you said you knew bribery was illegal, yet you engaged in bribery. I don't see what we can learn from you. And I responded, well, first I've been to federal prison. So if there's one thing I can assure you of, is it takes a lot to stress me out or to make me anxious. And your question (laughs) did not even hit the radar on that. And the next part of it, and this goes back to sharing experiences, making memories, humans leading humans. I shared, look, my responsibility is transparency, openness, sharing the story, warts and all, and to see if this real world experience can help you with the people in your organization who face the same exact risks that I did. They're not going away and there's no shortage of multinationals being charged for bribery offenses. So it's not like this is all in the rearview mirror. Now, if you think because of my experience that my story should be distorted Diluted or even discarded. Well, not only don't I resist that, but I embrace that. Because my responsibility to you is the transparency, it's the humility, it's the empathy. What you do with it from there, that's up to you. And I'll just never forget that. And we continue to email back and forth because we we it ultimately formed the basis of a friendship and we remain colleagues, but it had an impact on me because it reminded me that those human centric relationships, the transparency, the openness by which we try to learn. And it made me appreciate that training someone isn't necessarily preparing someone and it's not necessarily a learning moment. So I always pivot back to that interruption in my presentation to say, that was a great learning moment and a reminder to me about what I do.
0: So tell me, Richard, so you were taking enormous risks, traveling around the world, trying to get business of people, taking risks in that way as well, making decisions because your incentives were around maximum profit, you were thinking it's okay actually to ignore things that were going on did your business get? Or did that business, uh, were they fined? Or was the whole responsibility on your shoulders?
1: So it's yes and yes. It's, and it, this is a, a bit of a legal response is my former employer was charged by the regulators for, no surprise, lack of controls. So they paid a criminal fine, a civil fine, what they call the Uh, forfeiture of profits or the disgorgement of profits. Ultimately, they were purchased by another entity that had a more robust ethics and compliance system other than signing paperwork. So the government was satisfied that during, or because of the acquisition, that my former employer would now have a more robust framework. But for a number of different reasons, Katz, I was the only one that got locked up. Now, it takes a village to do this. It takes a village to do something right, and it takes a village to do something wrong. And if you look at my plea bargain, or what's otherwise called my charging documents, there are about a dozen what we call co-conspirators that were part of of these transactions. But for a number of different prosecutorial reasons, uh, they remain and will always be unindicted co-conspirators.
0: And I'm guessing all that way through it, you're thinking, well, I'm not on this on my own. I'm doing every kind of knows this is going on, so it can't be that bad. I I, yeah, I, I think your story is it's the ultimate end result of having a company where the board only wants to hear the good stuff, is only looking at the figures, and not thinking about the reality behind those of not having a create culture. You know, nobody's talking, nobody's curious. They're not asking those questions. You know, people are not collaborating in an open and transparent way, because if they were, you would all be responsible. So I, I find your story absolutely fascinating. And I can't thank you enough for sharing it because I know when we first started talking, I just, I went away thinking, my God, Is there a company in the world that isn't having some risk somewhere? And is their culture suppressing all of those truths? Are you, dear listener, the kind of leader who says to your people, only bring me good news?
1: That's right. And that's where we have that artificial harmony, where bad behavior can hide behind good performance until it's too late for everyone. But what's really interesting is the regulators, and I'm speaking generally, but on a global basis, they've become a lot more clever cats. It used to be where you could button someone up and say, here's the bad apple. They signed all this paperwork, you know. tell us what the fine is and, and we'll move on. But now even the regulators are saying, we want to know culturally and organizationally, What made this person think that what he or she did was an okay decision? And we're going to move up the org chart to figure out what happened.
0: Good. I don't know what to say. And we're back to that first conversation on the train between Menlo Park and SF. You know, Mary Inman is there helping people when they've been pushed to a situation where they've had to come forward and say something because nobody will listen to them. And my business and I think your business is very much more about saying better than that. How about you start to treat every single person inside your organization as a risk sensor? And you know what? Empower them to speak up and give them the autonomy to try and fix those things as soon as they start before they become cancerous. I love your stories, Richard Bistrong. Okay, so we're at that point in the podcast where I have to ask you, what would you like to call your episode of Humans Leading Humans?
1: Staying out of the crosshairs.
0: Staying out of the crosshairs. I love that. (laughs) Thank you, Richard. Have a phenomenal night. I really appreciate your time and your stories.
1: Thank you so much, Kat. I'm gonna get my headphones back on shortly and just keep going through those episodes. So thank you so much for having me join your human-centric, cultures-powering excellent. It is excellent, (laughs) it is a pleasure.
0: Wow, what a story. Richard, I, I suppose the thing that kind of bubbles to mind is just thank you for being courageous enough to just get out there and tell that story please keep telling it dear listeners how many times have you been under so much pressure and you've ended up doing something that you kind of know you shouldn't do it but you do it anyway because you're trying to hit targets in a way richard and the fantastic mary inman and Be- we're all looking at risk from different angles it's funny when I'm talking to leaders for the first time about what we do at Beep, I can almost see the fear in leaders' eyes when I talk to them about incentivizing people at all levels, in all departments, to speak up about all of those little problems, all of those little risks, because that's what Beep's about. Incentivizing leaders and then change makers across the whole organization to speak up about those little things that can be improved and then empower them with the tools and the permission to co-create and activate those solutions. I was just thinking as Richard was talking about a conversation that I had with an investor in San Francisco and he really captured the essence of BEEP and this beautiful biological analogy he said it's like um, you're inviting every single employee to act like white blood cells so as soon as something bad appears in your organizational organism those employees congregate around it to zap it before it becomes cancerous before it becomes fatal so ignoring your problems does not make them go away you can put your fingers in your ears and you can ignore the whispers at the water cooler." And that might might feel more comfortable, especially if you're hitting the figures and that your shareholders are happy. But the cost can be enormous for the company and for the human beings that you're putting under that pressure. So ask the right questions. Put the right incentives in place to make sure that people feel safe to speak up and thank them for their insights. That is the only way to sustainable success to resilience. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. If you are a senior marketing leader, and you need the know-how and the networks to succeed and you're not already a member of that brilliant tribe, jump over to their website and become part of the tribe. I would absolutely 100% recommend it. There's some amazing people and some inspiration in there that you don't want to be missing. Thank you to the fantastic Superterranea for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework and how we support companies by building cultures of connection and collaboration and unleashing the problem-solving potential of humans if you loved this episode and i certainly did please pass it on to your friends share it on social give it to your friends that you think might need a shot of inspiration or motivation or energization thank you so much for joining me if there's a senior leader you'd like me to interview, don't forget, mail me, cats at wearebeep.com. Please subscribe, the links are in the note. Be inspired, be imaginal, be more human. And I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.